Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you have a question, please text or email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And now, here are your hosts, Pastor Sean and Pastor Peter. Very good afternoon. Welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today and joined by Peter Martin for the next hour to take your Bible questions. If you'd like to send them to us, feel free to do so at questionsforhope at gmail.com. If you'd like to join us live, our website is calvary, C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com. Click on the Watch Live tab and you'll be sent to either a countdown to the next broadcast or the current broadcast, which is live streaming from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time in the U.S. or Pacific if you're not on Daylight Savings Time. We don't go over that in Arizona. Also note, social media, YouTube is a reason for hope and Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. However, given the unpredictability of those in charge of those social media platforms, if we are not streaming on that I guess, expected venue. And, of course, it is not due to technical error on our part, but tech tyranny. Note that our website won't be blocked. You can still join us there. And we'll look forward to engaging with you however you choose to join with us. Note that the engagement has three rules. We are here to answer sincere Bible questions. So if you have a sincere Bible and question, that fits that criteria. As long as it's about the Bible, as long as it is sincere and it is in the form of a question. We'll appreciate comments, but they won't be addressed. We appreciate topics that aren't about the Bible, but they won't be discussed. And we also want to engage with you, but if it's not something you're going to listen to the answer to, we won't waste either of our time. So with all that being said, note that you can send your questions to us both during and after the broadcast. Our email address is set aside for that very purpose, but before we get into your questions, we'll give you some time to think them through and send them along to us. We want to start off with a word of prayer as well as for our apologetics day in discussing some of the more hot topic discussions that we are having in this day and age and, of course, to equip you accordingly. But let's make sure that God speaks more than we do. Peter, could you pray for us? Yeah. Father, we love you and we're so grateful for the work that you do in our lives and in our world. Uh, We thank you that you are sovereign over all things, and we do pray that right now we'd be able to focus in on your word and your truth, allow that to be the thing that informs us and gives us peace and comfort. Uh, We love you very much, Lord, and we do want to give this time to you in your name. Amen. That is true. Now, what is our plan today? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so I thought that, you know, with everything still going on with Roe versus Wade, uh, those of you guys who don't know the news, Essentially, a or Supreme outside Court, the US. or outside of the U.S., and so it doesn't really affect you very much. Uh, Supreme Court decision was leaked ahead of time that would potentially overturn Roe versus Wade, which would return the issue of abortion back to the states. The Supreme Court still has not actually given their final opinion on it, so it's in the air. We don't actually know how they're going to rule. And because of that, the abortion topic is definitely in the news right now. People are talking about it a lot. And therefore, as pro-lifers, people who believe that the sanctity of life is the most important question in this particular topic, uh, and you may be hearing a lot of different argumentations against the pro-life position, it would be good for us to be able to 
refine our argumentation and make sure that the thing that we're saying not only is biblically coherent, which is the most important thing, but also logically coherent so that we can reach our neighbors who may not believe in the Bible as a source of truth. Although, son, you may be surprised to find how often the two coincide. Yes, exactly. Uh, So I'll give you two arguments that I heard this past week. One is really terrible, but I think it is actually very widespread. The other one is incredibly sophisticated, but it's also more rare. So it's actually a more uh, intellectually cogent argument, and it's much more difficult to debunk and to deal with. So we'll give the bulk of our time to that one. The other one I feel like is one that you would run into on the street. I think a, a very normal person would have this one. So I'll, I'll throw it over to you. The argument goes something like this. Well, up until the point of viability, the baby doesn't have autonomy. And because the baby doesn't have autonomy, they're not alive. They are a potential life. Just like if I were to take a seed and plant it in the ground, that even when it starts to germinate and start to sprout particular amounts of of vegetation, it's not a tree yet. You wouldn't call it a tree. It's a potential tree. And therefore, it wouldn't have the same repercussions for me to say, dig up a seed as opposed to chop down a tree. And that's all we're doing. We're just kind of digging up a seed. We're just taking out a potential life. We're not actually executing a full-blown life. How would we respond to something like that? Well, I guess we can go at it from two angles, but the point we make that's often clarifying the issue kind of resolves itself. When we note the difference between a potential life and a viable life, which is kind of foreshadowing here in a minute, we're basically talking about not only a difference of identity from the pro-choice position, but a difference of, I guess, status from them as well. If we're not in their quote-unquote viable or matured or tree-like stage, then we're somehow less valuable. We're classified as another being entirely. Obviously, if I throw away an acorn, it doesn't count as chopping down a tree. But if I remove a seed, then that's the argument. I think the best way to respond to this would be to note, well, what is the difference between you and me as people? The same difference between that zygote and us as well is time and nurture. If I dehumanize someone on the status of whether or not they have matured to a specific point, then it ultimately comes down to, and this is what's also key, what constitutes a living being. And is it the fact that the chromosomes are all in place? Yes, that is true for the zygote as well as for you and me. Is it the location? That is a very difficult position to argue as far as whether or not you can take something's life or not. Is it their adjacency to the mother? Is it any of these other things? The problem is with consistency and the best way to deal with an inconsistent argument is with clarity. What I believe about human beings is that regardless of what stage of life they're at, it's still life. If you say, well, early stages don't count. That's an opinion, not an objective fact. But with all of that then being said, we want to not just attack the low man. How would this be responded to effectively? Well, if someone's thinking about it that shallowly, you oftentimes can't. But what you can solidify in your mind is say, okay, what does this person think about life? And this will kind of be a layup into the next question. Is that a potential life and a viable life are two different things? That inside or outside of the womb, I can classify them different because either A, I can't see them, or B, I've just been trained to think in that way. But we don't want to fall into that kind of mindset, even about Christianity. I don't believe 
believe the Bible because the pastor keeps telling me so. I don't believe that miracles are possible because I just keep hearing about them, although I've never seen them. I don't believe in God because it's just the thing that we do in America. The same would be a poor argument the other way. So clarification, what is a life? Does development diminish value? But let's stop at the street level. Let's get more into... And I quote, the best argument you've ever heard of the pro-choice position. <laughs> uh, yeah, real quick, just a couple points to uh, wrap up that, that particular argument. Uh, the first one is that stages of life are not potential life. So a potential life means something that isn't actually alive yet. It has a potential to be alive. So, for instance, when uh, a man and a woman actually have sex, there is a potential to create life. But unless that potential is actualized, there is no ethical or moral responsibility towards that act, to the aftermath of, the, of that act. Um, but when we're talking about a zygote, it's not a potential life. It is alive. It is a stage of development. So when they make the argument of, well, you know, when you put a uh, seed in the ground and it begins to germinate, it's not a tree yet. Yeah, because tree is a designation that we give for a particular stage of development in the growth of the seed. It doesn't mean that once the seed starts to germinate, it's not a tree yet, so therefore it's not alive. You can't make that argument. If it's organically growing and everything necessary to become a tree is already in it and it just needs time, then yes, you are not you're you're cutting down a potential tree but more importantly you are killing a life now when it comes to the zygote you are you could say i'm killing a potential baby but you're not saying i'm killing a potential life you're killing the child at a stage of de development zygote fetus baby toddler child whatever preteen right teenager adult right those are stages of development but they all encapsulate the experience of a human being every single one of us went through that stage of development if you're intelligent enough to listen to what i'm saying you definitely went through that stage of development so therefore you cannot discount something as being alive because it's not in a particular state of a development if something is alive when we say something is alive we mean it has organic growth within itself if it is organically growing within itself it is alive the type of life is designated by different things that you already mentioned, chromosomal development as well as DNA, right? Those things tell us what kind of life we're dealing with. This is why over 95% of embryologists when they were surveyed, and this is just in the last two years, said that life begins at the moment of conception. And the vast majority of those embryologists, by the way, registered as pro-choice. So in the survey, they asked them, Do you, are you pro-life, pro-choice? The vast majority of them, I think it was over 80% said that they were pro-choice, and yet 95% said that they do believe that life begins at the moment of conception. So enough of the low-hanging fruit. You guys came here for the best of the best. This is legitimately the best pro-life, pro-choice argument I've ever heard. It honestly stumped me for a good week. I didn't know a good response to it. I knew that there were problems with it, but it was a very, very coherent, very sophisticated argumentation for the legalization of choice. So the argument goes something like this. It's not that they're making a moral argument, and this is what makes it so genius. They're not saying that it's moral to abort a child. They're not even saying it's, uh, it's moral to allow them to choose. All they're saying is that it's immoral. In fact, they could even push it. Some of them that I've heard make this argument push it and say it is immoral to abort a child. However, and the child is fully human. However, does that mean that the government should legalize something just because it's immoral? And there's different 
varieties of ethics that we could go into. So for instance, I think it is moral for a parent to be able to invest in their kid's life, not just give them what they need to survive, but to actually be there for them, to nurture them, to encourage them, to help them. I think that that's a very moral thing to do. I don't think it is moral for a parent to be negligent in their kid's life. Should I legalize that? Well, no, you know, I wouldn't want the government to be able to go into your house and say, you're not spending enough time with your kid. You know, like that's, that's not good for their development. Therefore you're going to jail. You know, you don't want the government to be able to do that. However, there are certain levels of morality that we all agree should be legalized. Like thou shall not kill things like that. Right. Murder. Uh, that's right. Murder. Now, when it comes to this issue, should this be a legal issue? Now, this is how the argument goes. Imagine for a second that your child Let's say you give up a child. Ten years later, the child comes back to you and says, uh, you know, I have this rare disorder. My body is shutting down. I'm going to die unless I get a kidney. I have a very, very rare blood type that I got from you. And therefore, you are the only person that I know of that could save my life. But you have to give me a kidney. Is that a moral thing to do? Yes, of course it's moral to save the life of your child, even though you don't have an invested interest in their life, meaning that you're not in their life, you are not hanging around them, you're not raising them. It is still moral for you to help not just your child, but a stranger not die if you have the capacity to do so, even if it does severely inconvenience you and hurt you. That's a moral thing. I think the majority of people would agree that it's, it's moral to do that. However, should that be illegal? So if, uh, if someone says, no, I don't want you to give, I don't want to give you one of my kidneys. I'm very sorry for the medical troubles that you're going through, but no, like that puts me in danger that, uh, I'm maybe I have a current family that I'm trying to take care of. If I give you one of my kidneys, it puts me more at risk to be sick and there could be complications in surgery. I don't want to risk the family I have for a child that I gave away 10 years ago. Now, most of us would look at a person who would say that and say, eh, you know, that's, that's pretty immoral. That's pretty scummy for you to let your own kid die as a result of you doing that. However, it's not illegal to do that, right? No one's going to show up at your door and arrest you for doing that. So they would put this in the same category. They would say, well, in the same way, if the child isn't viable, it's a terrible tragedy that we have to abort the child in order to get it out of the womb. However, the mother does not have a moral responsibility to have to bring the child to term in the same way that a parent doesn't have a moral, what well, doesn't have a legal responsibility, sorry, a legal responsibility to bring the child to term, just like the parent doesn't have a legal responsibility to give up a kidney for their child. That would be the argument. Again, very sophisticated. And again, the genius of it is because it's very easy for us as Christians to say, well, of course it's immoral for a mother to abort her own child, but they push it and they say, but should it be illegal? That's the point. So just so that everyone here is following, myself included, when we're framing this argument, essentially what makes it so complicated is that if you attack the points in the wrong order, we end up being very inconsistent and accused of, I guess, defending or promoting the wrong point. But if we approach this carefully and understand what is and isn't being said, what the goal is in debunking it is not to necessarily argue with the conclusion, but to point out misunderstandings between, just like with the first objection, what we actually view the pregnancy process to be. Is it something that is a detriment to the woman? Is it a life-threatening illness that requires intervention by the mother? Is it something 
intentionally pursued and so forth? Is it something natural? Is it something legislative? Is it something right or wrong because the government says so and so forth? Now, we have to be careful, so let's take this apart piece by piece and ask, okay, so what's the first assumption? Premise one is what? So the first premise is the child is alive. Premise two would be, however... You do not have to consent to giving someone the usage of your body in order to maintain their life. So the example being the kidney. Premise three then would be, although it is sad and tragic, that but if a mother doesn't want to utilize her body to support her child, she doesn't have to. And if that results in the death of her child, so be it, but that's not the intent. So in this scenario, the argument for abortion isn't for the overwhelming majority, 99.998% of all abortions performed worldwide, let alone in the United States, mm -hmm. are not for the sake of the mother's life, but are for personal convenience. Emotional distress is usually the argument right. that this is for the mental health and, of the And mother. again, this, this is what makes this so... So brilliant. It doesn't actually touch on any of that. No, it, it doesn't, doesn't even address it. The but idea it's dealing is with a very specific form. It's saying that should abortion exist for this very specific scenario, we could drop a point on that. But that's not the premise of the argument. Right. And it's not even like I said, it's not even that it's allowed. It's just it shouldn't be illegal. Right. That's the idea. And that's the libertarian aspect of right. this. Are you restricting freedom? And if you attack it from a legislative position first, suddenly you're going against enforcing laws that people don't necessarily want to adhere to. And you're giving too much power to the government. If you go at it from a medical standpoint, you're saying we're not talking about biology. We're talking about law. So what would be the most, uh, I guess, careful way to properly handle this uh, uh, Barnes and Noble puzzle piece we got here. Yeah, so the I, I didn't I wasn't even able to figure out a clear answer. Uh, I actually got one. I can't remember what her name is, but she actually gave a very good answer to it that I think stands up. So in law, there is a difference between what we call an ordinary need versus an extraordinary need. So a good example of this is if I go outside today and somebody has collapsed out in front of my house and I'm not sure if they're alive or dead. I do have a legal obligation to call the police, right? I, I cannot just say, well, you know, I'm not really sure if they're alive or not. And, you know, I'm on my way to work and I'm kind of late. And, you know, I didn't ask for this person to show up on my doorstep. I didn't consent to this. This is going to ruin my day. I don't want to call anyone and inconvenience myself and have the cop show up at my house. I'd rather just drive away and let someone else deal with this problem. If I do that, I actually can be in violation of law because what they're in need of is a very ordinary need. An ordinary need would just be like food and shelter, right? So food and water, essentially, uh, not even shelter, food and water. That's something that I should be able to provide someone with. Or uh, she gives a more obscure example. She's like, imagine you're kidnapped and you're brought to a cabin in the middle of the woods and you're locked in this cabin. There's no way out. But Thankfully, your kidnapper wants you to live, so they provide you with enough food and nourishment to be able to feed yourself and take care of yourself. But here's the catch. There is a baby in the cabin with you, and your kidnapper has also provided you with formula and ways to take care of the child. No, she's not arguing for or against abortion or making this cabin out to be an argument against the position. We're comparing thought for thought. If right. you're setting up a false premise, you need to first understand the illustration and where it falls short of reality. Exactly. So the needs of the child in that instance are ordinary and you have the capacity to provide those needs for the child if you don't do it so let's say you are found months later and you're okay but you let the child die once again legal action actually can be taken against you because you had a very simple 
capacity to take care of the ordinary needs of that child and you neglected to do it simply because you didn't want to. Now, when it comes to the case of the kidney, that's not an ordinary need. That's an extraordinary need. The body doesn't need, uh, I'm sorry, the body doesn't always need to have a new kidney brought into it. That is a very extraordinary circumstance in which both of their uh, kidneys are diseased and they need one of yours. Beyond that, once you give your kidney, you can't have it back. The natural function of the kidney is to stay in your body. However, the natural function of the uterus is to grow life. That's what it's designed to do. The mother isn't giving something up that's irretrievable. She is utilizing a part of her body that was actually designed to provide for the ordinary needs of her child at that specific time and place. So because of that, the law can make this illegal because again, the child is alive. They've already argued that point for us. And the child is in need of something very ordinary, just food and shelter. And the mother who has the uterus, which has the design to actually support the life, does have the obligation to be able to continue to support that life until she doesn't need to do that anymore, meaning that the child could be removed from her without damaging the child. Just like, again, if almost guys in front of my house passed out, I do have not only a moral obligation, I do have a legal obligation to make sure that somebody takes care of this person. That is an ordinary need, and I and the law absolutely can and does enforce ordinary needs upon the citizenry. So if you want to make an argument that ordinary needs should not be legalized, that's on you. Uh, th therefore, we could actually let our fellow man die and do nothing about it. Uh, I don't think you want to live in that society, and neither do I. But that would be the argumentation. Yes, as a Christian, we should fight to make abortion illegal. Why? Because it restricts a mother from providing for the ordinary needs of her children. I'm mean, not sorry, doesn't restrict, but it allows for a mother to neglect giving ordinary care to her children and therefore letting them die. If you take that even to its logical conclusion, this would also tentatively excuse a parent from providing ordinary needs from their children after they're out of the womb. Because if you can deny an ordinary need from your child within the womb, what is to stop you from denying an ordinary need to your child outside of the womb? Let's say not providing them with food or anything like that while they're just living in your house. That would be neglect. You would be responsible for the death of your child and abortion falls under the same category. So again, very sophisticated argument and it, it shouldn't touch on anything very uh, intriguing for us on a moral issue because again, the ethical issue of abortion is actually fairly simple but it does stretch our minds a little bit as Christians to help us understand what, where the line is between ethics and legality within the country that we live in and what we should fight for. And again, a common argument that most Christians have is like, well, you know, I don't want to legislate my morality. Well, okay, I get that on some issues, but this isn't just some fringe right that we're talking about. We're talking about the right to life. The right to life is the most fundamental right that a human being can have. If you don't have the right to life, you don't have any rights, period. And if the government does not protect the right to life of a particular group of its citizenry, that government is negligent towards its duties. That is the main thing that the government is supposed to function and supposed to do. And it's wrong of us to say, well, I have the right to life. So why should I care if this other part of my of the country does not have the right to life? This is an argument that many people made during, unfortunately, slavery in America, 
where they're like, well, I have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Why should I care that a part of the population is being prevented from having those rights? Well, you should care because a government that neglects to give those rights to one group of people is not a just government. And even if you are being provided with those rights, that's not a government that I would want to live under. And it's not a government that I would be very proud to live under. It's not following the dictates that God has given them. All right. So to <clears throat> recap and simplify all of that, mm-hmm. obviously it's a complicated issue, not necessarily because of the way it's argued, but the way it's structured. And if we deal with it in the proper way, it's not necessarily something in the argument itself that we can properly deal with. But say you happen to run into somebody who's really thought through this issue, presents that uh, objection to you, and gives that illustration, you reply with another illustration. You don't say, well, there's not any misplaced thought in your thinking. You can be respectful at this point and say, oh, I appreciate that you've thought this through. But can I give you another example and say, what if you were to look at it this way? And the two distinctions were, and this is again, just to repeat the punchline of the point, the necessary and the extraordinary. Mm -hmm. If I were to apply that into the argument, why would it fall apart? Just again, for the sake of the audience. Right. Right. So when you apply to the argument, it falls apart because in the example that they give of a child needing a kidney, That's an extraordinary need. That's something that goes beyond the pale. But when it comes to a child within the womb, their needs are ordinary. They're things that, again, the uterus is naturally designed to be able to support. The woman is, yes, it's an inconvenience. Yes, it's something that taxes on them, but it's still providing for the ordinary needs of that child to live. There's one purpose for that organ. That's right. And, And since the child is alive, and they've already argued that, therefore, you do need to provide for the ordinary needs of that child. And it is right for governments to legislate that because the governments already do. If I deny ordinary needs towards people that are around my vicinity, I can be criminalized for that, right? Absolutely, and I should, right? So again, if I come across someone who is in the need of something that's very ordinary and I have the capacity to give it to them and I deny them that and they die as a result, I should go to jail for that, right? Um, So again, another kind of example I could give is imagine for a second that someone literally is about to die for thirst, that somehow you know that that's what's wrong with them. They're about to die of thirst and you have a water bottle. If you're like, "Mm, but I might want the water bottle. You know, I'm not really that thirsty, but I might get thirsty later. If I give him my water bottle, that kind of inconveniences me a little bit. So I'm going to keep going. No, you go to jail for that. Right. You can't let someone die when you have water in your hand. That's an ordinary need. You do need to provide for that. Again, the child in the womb will die if they are not provided for in the womb. Therefore, the mother does have a legal obligation to provide those ordinary needs for her child. And that neglecting that would be a violation of the ordinary. The mistake in the illustration for arguing pro-abortion is that it uh, confuses ordinary for extraordinary. Right. And that's where we need to ultimately clarify. And this will tie into another question we received from, uh, I won't try, but another question we received on our Facebook page uh, that, again, at street level, the one that you always hear, what about rape and incest? We'll deal with that in a moment. Mm -hmm. If you can start with the foundation, the child is alive. Right. That is where the crux of this argument ultimately stands or falls. Mm -hmm. Now, we can argue that biologically. For Christians, we can argue that theologically and scripturally, when it comes to any fair inquiry, the only reason there is any, any 
doubt into this is because of politics. Mm. So you need to be able to point that out. Emotions don't found truth. So when it comes to rape or incest, understand that is a foundational emotive argument. It has to do two things which we can't agree to. First, it has to dismiss the life of the child in Mm. favor of the mother, which is a mistake. The mother would agree. And the second issue is it's doing... I I won't get into the philosophical issues. You don't determine the rule by the exception because, as we stated before, 99.998% of all abortions performed worldwide are a result of three things, not just rape or incest, but to save the life of the mother. These are extremely rare instances, and childbirth is an extremely common phenomena. So when we're talking about this, you would ask the person, and this is, I think, a very wise move. Let's pretend that you're right. If I grant that and say all forms of rape or incest or threat to life of the mother, I'm even giving you an extra and say that should be permissible for abortion. Well, we're going to ban and criminalize any physician, not the mother, the physician who would knowingly perform an unnecessary taking of the child's life. Would you agree to that? Every single pro-choice argument you're going to run into would say no. And thus, it is ultimately a non-issue. You don't argue something you don't care about in order to prove something that you do. Yeah, you don't, you don't argue from the exception. You argue from the rule. So what is the rule? That childbirth is an unfortunate because of the fall but very messy process, but nonetheless a natural and a necessary one for life to continue on this earth. If I eliminate the child out of emotional distress or inconvenience, I am committing murder. But if, on the other hand, I dehumanize the child, which is why this argument is so foundational with that assumption, then I'm put in the same place that I started. Well, I just don't care. Well, that makes you a callous murder. But if, on the other hand, you'd say, well, I've been trained not to care. Well, that's horrible, and I hope that the people who have taught you this way will be held responsible. Psalm 73 says yes. But here's the point. If I argue this and say, well, rape, I mean, you're going to force a woman to bring that baby to term? Well, first of all, you're very much presenting this in a motive fashion. Let me counter that with even more emotion. I don't believe the death penalty is due to anyone in that scenario but the rapist. I think we can hopefully agree on that as well. In fact, the reason why rape is such a heinous crime, and we would both agree is worthy of the death penalty ten times over, if that were possible, is because it brings a child into this world. It causes such a devastating impact on the mother's biology, psychology, and overall everything else involved, their humanity even. Then you bring the child into it. And you have to kill their life, too. I'd say you're making an already horrific situation worse. It's not a viable argument. It's not a solution. Also note as well for incest, the reason why that is used as a permitted opportunity for abortion is because the child is more prone to birth defects as a result of those near blood relations and breeding. 
can find another word. I'll get at the source later. But the we're, it's a dark topic, folks. I'm trying to bring some levity to it. When we're talking about the criminal penalties for incest, it's for that reason. You, the parents, are knowingly committing an act that will not only result in a pregnancy, but will bring undue and unnecessary harm on that child if those birth defects will take place. And much like with the previous argument, I'm put into this scenario where I'm knowingly inflicting harm on something I recognize as a child. I don't then argue, well, if the child could be harmed or could be, uh, I guess, subjected to a more difficult or even a more painful life, as a result of this, then I'm just putting them out of their misery in that sense. Well, now we're arguing not for abortion, but for euthanasia. And hopefully you still have enough of a conscience left, and I mean that very pointedly, to say that that is kind of dodgy. Because then how do you argue for autism, for Down syndrome, for any other birth defects? If they, a mother was on antidepressants and they may have uh, the defect where they don't have any limbs, but say like half of the quote-unquote, this is a term that they use, the chicken bone yeah. uh, syndrome and so forth. That's not a viable option. We have countless examples, public and very vocal, by the way, because this is a matter of life and death for them. Individuals who have gone through life completely fine in spite of their deformities. There are also those who have suffered but understand, just like with the rape issue, it's not the it's not the rule it's the exception so again we want to make sure this is a biblically based broadcast why is it that we recognize a child as a life when it comes to the christian worldview it's which is for, pretty unique yeah in this worldview as well yeah and i'll just hand it off for yeah. that point of conclusion to make sure that the <clears throat> christians in the audience don't fall into this trap all of these pro-choice arguments mm -hmm. pro-abortion arguments excuse me fall apart if you can set the foundation for, in your own mind, is the child a life? Right. What reasons do we have biblically, scripturally, theologically to conclude that and science eventually caught up? Right. So biblically, there's this premise that human beings are made in the image of God. So very early on in the book of Genesis, God says, because man was made in the image of God, if man sheds his blood by man's hand, shall his blood be shed. So God institutes the death penalty for someone who would take another's life. And the reasoning is very simple because he's made in the image of God. There is a intrinsic worth or value attached to human life that surpasses anything else within the created universe. Everything else in the created universe has some levels of protection depending on its uh, various usefulness to humanity or its own intelligence. But humanity itself is the only being in the universe that God bestows special preference upon because we bear God's image. So to strike down a human is to strike down an image of the omnipotent king of the entire universe. That is illegal. It's bad. You shouldn't do it. Um, because of that, the Bible argues that we have inherent worth. What this means is you do not have to perform anything or be a particular way in order to be worthy of particular rights like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You just have to bear the image of God. The second you bear the image of God, which happens at conception, you are an inherently worthy object that should be protected and should be afforded with rights. That's the principles that the Bible presents us with as Christians. So if I could prove that what is in the womb is human, then I also prove that it bears the image of God 
and therefore is worthy of intrinsic rights. Uh, now, I said that this is a very unique worldview because basically no other religion agrees with us. Most other religions say that people get worth, they gain worth through what they can provide for their society. This is why it wasn't uncommon for people to sacrifice their children to Moloch in Mesopotamia. It wasn't uncommon for the Greeks and the Roman culture to leave their children outside to be killed if they found any defect or they were unwanted, right? These were all very normal instances within the ancient world. Why? Because they didn't have a worldview that supported the ideal of inherent human worth. Only the Christian worldview supports that. So therefore, because we agree with that premise of the Bible, that humanity has inherent worth and value, therefore, we also agree that if the child in the womb is a, is a human being, which scientifically we can prove that, and biblically we can see that there are passages that allude to the idea that life begins in the womb. Uh, by the way, some people bring up that different theologians have disagreed with that. They have said, like Thomas Aquinas thought that it might happen at the quickening, meaning when the child can begin to move, that's when life begins. Well, the reason why he argued that way is because he had no idea what was going on in the womb. So there were some passages that you could look at and say, it seems like God is saying that your life begins in the womb. And you can make a very solid argument from the Bible that you bear the image of God within the womb. You have instances like in the book of Luke where John recognizes Jesus in utero and second worships. Second trimester. Second trimester. And Mary's in the first trimester. And who was he worshiping? A first trimester baby that indeed had consciousness, activity, and identity. That's right. So you can make very solid arguments from it. But now that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt, sonograms, right? That what is in the womb is undeniably human. There should be no more debate for a Christian. If you follow the scriptures, if you believe in the inherent worth of human life, then you must conclude that human life needs to be protected in all stages of human development, including in the womb. By the way, same worldview that put an end to slavery, because up until Christianity permeated the ancient world, slavery was ubiquitous. It was just all over the world because none of them had a worldview that supported the idea that all human life is inherently valuable and therefore afforded with particular rights. They thought, nope, you are of value to the community. So if you're a conquered peoples, if you're someone who's just been sold because you're in debt, you do not have those rights and we can remove those rights from you. Christianity was the worldview that said, no, because all men are created equal and they are endowed by the creator with the, with certain inalienable rights among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I cannot steal the right of the pursuit of happiness to my neighbor, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their social status, regardless of their cultural status. Therefore, slavery is wrong. That's how that happened. So the very worldview that people kind of hate right now is the one that outlawed slavery, which is kind of interesting. And then uh, we got way over time on this, but I guess it's worth discussing because it's important for those listening. Uh, quick clarification from Adrian regarding Good Samaritan laws. Would this, how would this apply to the argument? Uh, yeah, so Good Samaritan laws, uh, there are varying degrees of Good Samaritan laws. Basically, again, it differentiates between extraordinary and ordinary means. So, like, for instance, there are some Good Samaritan laws that say if I see someone getting mugged, I should do something to intervene. Like, if I have the potential to do something, I should intervene. There's the some, finale on Seinfeld. Right, exactly, which is kind of funny. Um, but some Good Samaritan laws don't do that because they do make differentiations between ordinary and extraordinary needs. So because someone being mugged is kind of an extraordinary need, and in order for me to intervene, I might be risking my life or I might be risking escalating the situation, there is an argumentation for me not doing anything. 
However, I'm not aware of any state, like I said, in the union where I could see someone dying and I have the means to help them and deny that person the help and I'm not going to be uh, penalized by the law, and rightfully so. And, and applying to the argument, basically, and let me know if this helps, Adrian, we're just trying to be consistent with the illustration, not with the actual reality. The thought behind it is a confusion between what is the basically uh, critical issue of a good Samaritan law and the sticky business in that. When is it reasonable to do so in right. the intervention? So if you are then making that assumption, the argument stands or falls on not only what they grant, that the child is alive, but it's not legislatively. Mm-hmm. And that's where it becomes tricky. You have to match it with another scenario, and that's why it's so complex, not because you have to keep both illustrations in line, but not misunderstand each point's illustration. That's why we laid it out with those premises. So Good Samaritan Law, as long as it's appropriately applied to what each illustration are trying to prove. You can, again, uh, we'll get the name of the individual. We know you in person, so he can get the name of her. You can walk through our argument, plug and play as you go. But let us know if that helps. Uh, It's not necessarily a theological implication. It's catching the point of the illustration and, therefore, the bad thinking. Right, and you quote some of them, willful and wanton negligence to varying degrees, and that that is what we're talking about. So, uh, again, it's, it's willful, it's intentional. I see you have a need. And I'm wantonly disregarding it. That's the idea of a good Samaritan law. But like, like I said, there are varying degrees of how those laws are applied in various states. But the basis of all of them is if there is an ordinary need that can be met easily by you and you don't do it, you are in trouble. All right. And then uh, one more, one more. Uh, Yari wants to know about where the child and the mother could die. Would abortion be okay then? Remember, I even granted that. When it comes to the incest rape rule, we can even pretend that's the case. And knowing how extremely rare it is, if you say, okay, let's ban all other forms, is that going to be okay for you? No, they don't care. It's not the point of the legislation. They want to get away with treating a child's birth as a consequence rather than a treasure. The point being made is this. If I am talking to someone who actually cares about that, then you can go through certain instances. In fact, almost every instance where when the mother's life is at risk, it's because the baby's already dead. That would not be an abortion then. It's the willful ending of a normally developed pregnancy. If something happens where the child is either dead in the womb, but at a late stage of development, and thus the childbirth would be a horrific, but ultimately fruitless experience, stillborn syndrome and stuff is unfortunate or not unfortunately, fortunately easier to detect now, but you have to double check their work, get second opinions on that. Believe me, you have to make sure that all of your ducks are in a row. If you can base the foundation on what are the facts on the table, just the facts, ma'am, as the old show used to say, that is where we need to argue from, not hypotheticals, because they don't even care. All right. Going out to your questions for the remainder of the broadcast. First, let's start with, uh, pardon my pausing. Um, Again, another question from Adrian. Uh, Should believers listen to unbelieving thinkers who comment on the Christian faith, such as Jordan Peterson? Well, I think insofar as it's in line with properly understood biblical values, if a frog (laughs) ribbits enough times to line up with a biblical truth, it's still worth hearing, not because of who or what's saying it, but whether or not it lines up with the Bible. Uh, Two examples I can give were the quotations Paul gave of Epimenides, where he made a valid theological point. In Acts 17 on Mars Hill, and again in his letters to Timothy, he quoted that we are all his offspring, since we are all offspring of God. Hold on, Paul, that's a pagan idea. No, a pagan said it, but it's still true, regardless of whether a pagan said it or even intended it. 
in this direction or not. Uh, Peter, you listen to a lot of Jordan Peterson. Obviously, he doesn't get everything right. He has his uh, own opinions when it comes to the mundane details, and you should always take it with a grain of salt. But when Jordan Peterson makes a valid theological point is that less valid than if we said it ourselves no and honestly sometimes it could be helpful for someone who's an outsider to christianity to make comments on the bible so if someone who's not a christian reads the bible they might get an insight that some of us christians don't get because we're inundated with scripture so often that we might miss certain narrative aspects of the bible that would otherwise be very obvious to someone coming from an outside perspective. So there are times where I listen to Jordan Peterson go through the Bible, and even though he's not a Christian, he'll make points where I'm like, oh, I kind of missed that. That's really cool. Uh, because he's reading it as a narrative. He's reading it as a story. And therefore, he picks up on certain story beats that I miss, also because he has an education in Jungian psychology, where he believes in the doctrine of archetypes, where he believes that there are archetypal characters within mythology that can help us understand not only our own lives, but culture itself. So because he has that training, he's very adept at reading ancient texts. And so again, he could pick up on things that some Christians can miss. But honestly, I mean, uh, this is why C.S. Lewis is such a prolific writer in the Christian, uh, Christian community, even though he was never a pastor. Right. So you have a layman, someone who was never a pastor. Uh, to my knowledge, he wasn't really theologically trained, but he has such amazing insights. Why? Because the dude was amazing at reading mythology and ancient texts. So he was able to pick up and he was philosophically very well trained. So he was able to pick up on some nuances that many theologians miss oftentimes. So absolutely or couldn't clarify as well. Exactly. Exactly. Um, obviously, I wouldn't encourage a brand new believer to listen to someone like Jordan Peterson very frequently. I mean, if you just want to listen to his psychological takes, go for it because that's all he's going to talk about. But when it comes to biblical interpretation, it might mess you up a little bit if you don't have a very firm understanding of the text because he does make theological points in some of his speeches that do go astray from sound orthodoxy. But I won't so, hold that against him because he is not a believer. <laughs> yeah. So absolutely. Same with, same with Jewish people. I, I get a lot out of listening to Jewish commentators on the Old Testament. They have a lot of cool insights. Are the conclusions right? No. But they make a lot of good points. So absolutely you can. So I would recommend it for a more seasoned saint to listen to things like that. I could get, think it could give you a good perspective and you can uh, chew the meat, spit out the bones. If you're a newer believer, try to stick more to Orthodox teachers just so you can develop a good understanding of the text of scripture and good sound Orthodoxy. After you've developed that, then maybe try to, to uh, if you want, if that's something that even interests you. I'm not say, even prescribing it. I'm not saying that you should. I'm just saying that if you do like or appreciate the thoughts of someone like Jordan Peterson, who, in my opinion, is one of the premier intellects of our day. Um, I think that you can get a lot from what his what he writes and what he speaks about. So absolutely, I think there's a lot of insight there. Just be careful because his theological conclusions are a little uh, wanton. Yeah, even if you're hearing it from a believer or a pastor. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast to what is good. Same is true for us. If we say something that is off, it doesn't discredit the Bible, but it means that you should be practicing your discernometer a little bit. If a non-believer who would be, I guess, more prone to error because he doesn't have the Holy Spirit, but still is made in the image of God to the point where he can recognize truth as he reads it, then if he speaks that truth, we are just as due to recognize it as if he heard it from another believer. Believer. But if not, then 
well, it would be the same as if we said something false. <laughs> Just make sure that those uh, deflector shields are up, so to speak. Yeah. All right, a uh, question from Craig who wants to know, <laughs> oh, boy, if we are praying and fall asleep and don't say amen, does it still count? He assumes it does count, but uh, that's that's fun. There's the, First uh, of all, what, what does amen mean? Amen is literally I agree or I affirm what I say. Right. Uh, if I won't get into that, but uh, when we're talking about <laughs> so a lot of Christians don't even know that they say, they say it and they don't know what it means. So well, some uh, elected officials don't know that. That's what I was yeah. about to say. Amen and a women. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, that made me cringe yeah, quite more, a bit <laughs> more than it should have. But anyway, yeah. um, when it comes to formula or status for prayer, just like understanding what amen means, what does it mean to pray? It's literally communicating with God. If right. you literally told him, and we have an example of this in Nehemiah chapter two, Lord, help me. There was no amen in that. Right. <laughs> it was communication with God from the heart. It was sincere and it was recognizing there was an audience that is always required for God to hear you. It was a heart that recognizes he's there and acknowledging and treating him as such. You can pray without even saying words. In fact, in Romans chapter eight, the spirit is groaning for us with words that can't even be uttered. So if we ask the question, if I don't say the right words, well, the spirit's not saying any words. I don't expect God to be a bad prayer. And Jesus specifically says that, right? And John, uh, I'm sorry, in Matthew chapter six, when he's talking about prayer, he says like, do not think that you were heard for your many words, right? There's, there's no format that causes God to hear you. The simplest way to put it is like, what's, what is prayer designed to be like? Uh, the way that uh, this objection, I don't think you in your question say you don't believe this, Craig, but the way that this would be presented is prayer is kind of like an email and you got to you got to include the, the subject line and you got to like you got to hit the send and you got to make sure it's, you know, blind carbon copied or whatever uh, to whoever you want to receive it. No, it's not like an email. It's like a conversation, right? You are communicating with God. And so it's like if I'm having a conversation with my wife and I fall asleep in the middle of it, um, does it count? She might be a little offended that I fell asleep while talking to her, but ultimately everything that we communicated about, especially if I'm dead tired, if there's a good reason why I'm falling asleep and not just that I'm bored with what she's saying. Um, but as long as the communication up until that point was good, she can take from it what we got and then understandably say, okay, he's tired. He's beat. He fell asleep. Okay. Whatever. Hopefully she'll find it cute. Right. <laughs> uh, God is the same way. You know, he obviously just wants to communicate with us. We're his children. He loves us very much. Cast your cares upon him for he cares for you. That's what first Peter says. So, uh, it, it does quote unquote count in the sense that God appreciates our prayers. He loves our prayers. He likens them to sweet incense in the book of revelation. So very, very important to him. And if you fall asleep in it, he might find it cute. Jesus uh, in the garden, he kind of, there's one, there's a couple of times where he seems a little bothered, but there's one where he's kind of like, and just goes back and prays, you yeah. know, like, so. Well, that was a very stressful situation where yeah. he asked them to pray with him. Yeah. <laughs> they still fell asleep. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. No, yeah. Don't worry about uh, leaving out certain words. We just have that format, but it's not like, you know, the uh, Charlie Brown prayer where it's like, if I pray with my hands down, I'll get the opposite of what I ask for. The purpose isn't a ritual. It's an action. So just make sure that what you do and why is what's important. I mentioned this with our, well, I guess when we still had it, uh, student ministry all the time uh, when we'd pray before the message I'd literally explain to them as we prayed together what we're doing alright let's fold our hands now why are we doing that it's not because this is like how God hears us so that you aren't bothering your neighbor why are we closing our eyes because even though we can't see God we are talking to him as if he's there why are we bowing our heads 
Well, it's because we're being respectful of the one we're talking to. Why are we talking? Because he's listening, because he loves to hear from us. So let's do that. Just make sure that's the attitude you have when you pray. And I think that uh, the childlike faith doesn't have to wonder about uh, Amon or Amon in proper pronunciation is uh, going to set the capstone every time. It's good to agree with what you're saying, but I think that's assumed. So that said, um, here's a question from Yari who wants to know, is it biblical to be born in a hospital or at a home birth, water birth, some people are afraid of hospitals. How do we handle these secondary issues? It's a good question, Yari. The good news is the term hospital actually came from the Bible. The concept that you would care for people's medical or personal needs, despite not being of your family. Uh, remember that at the time the Bible was completed, we were still living under a pagan world-dominating empire known as Rome, and at least as relevance to the Jews were concerned. And what was interesting about that was they had physicians, but they were slaves. They were attached to families. If you were just you know out on the street, there wasn't a Roman designated physician for each city. That was beyond the pale or concern. The healing temples and so forth were a joke. Uh, spas, essentially, and not a lot of good things happen there. So when we're talking about this obligation that we have in hospitals to provide for medical needs for people who most of the time can't support themselves, right. but will provide that as an oath necessary for that office, the Hippocratic Oath, as it's called, derived from a Greek man, but uh, undoubtedly inspired by some writings that uh, line up with, interestingly enough, Judaism. They were all tied into that principle. If this person is valuable, then wherever we are, we are obligated to preserve their life. And a nation like the United States uh, was modeling itself after that. And when Europe became predominantly Christian, the idea of cathedrals also became hospitals because of the law of hospitality. That's where this idea came from. So if you're going to say, well, in the Bible, you have to go to the hospital. Well, hospitals didn't exist at any time the Bible was written, so you're not going to find it there. If you say in principle, you should see the best medical care, well, I understand the argument more and more people are making that hospitals aren't going to provide the best care, at least not as much as they used to. You always want to trust someone who is handling medical needs, but again, I understand the argument. When it comes to secondary issues, though, if someone says home birth or water birth, the I think most productive way to deal with it is to not object or give them reasons why they're wrong, is to reaffirm and clarify what reasons do you have for that being the best option for you. If they're a home birth and you'd say, well, can I, what do you need from me? Can I help you in any way? Do you need more towels, sanitation, anything like that? Say, oh no, we're, we're going to do it in like a jacuzzi. I'm like, okay, so if you, you have like a midwife there, is there something we can talk to? I think that's the best way to deal with it because it's a non-issue theologically as to where you go for the baby to be born because until the advent of Christianity, which was a very long time, that's just what happened. You were born at home. Yeah. <laughs> so they seem to be doing okay. No real choice. Yeah. yeah. If you go to Exodus 1, those were all home births. Yeah. Uh, maybe in the Nile a few times, but that's an image. The point being made is that, though, it's not a biblical issue. It's a biblical foundation. But if you say, oh, but it's all run by the government now, and I don't really trust the direction they're going with that, hey, empathize 100%. But let's just make sure that when we're approaching this, and as a follow-through as well with homeschooling versus attending public school, you do so informed. If you're going to send your kids to public school, especially today, that's even more incentive for parents to know and to be involved with what their parents are teaching. Uh-oh, I just inspired terrorism. Anyway, so that's an American joke for those of you who are listening overseas. Um few more questions. We've got two and a half minutes. Uh, this is from Lynn. 
Uh, do you know Sarah Young, the writer of Jesus Callings series, and uh, would we recommend it? Uh, no, I've never heard of it. Yeah, um, so I'm I sorry, I can't. I can't really comment on it, and I don't. <laughs> yeah, let's. Uh, uh, yeah, so sorry about that, Lynn. <laughs> we we haven't read. Uh, no, no, I I don't recommend it. Oh, you uh, don't? Okay. Uh, the uh, idea is that it's spoken in the first person in regarding to this uh, daily devotional series where Jesus is speaking to you in the first person and some of the interviews that she's made in clarifying uh, kind of veer a little too close to for comfort regarding automatic writing and so forth that God kind of took her over and she was speaking as if she was Jesus. Uh, if you want uh, good commentaries or daily devotions, you can find them, but one that would advertise them as Jesus doesn't mean that you're wrong, but it does mean you have to be very careful. And in some areas, uh, you can look it up online. People have made critical critiques, I repeat myself, of the work uh, say that's not quite right. And when you present it as Jesus, that's another problem. Another example of this was when there was a radio show that hosted an individual who's a seminary graduate, well-educated and stuff, but uh, he presented himself as if he was Jesus and he'd answer people's questions. And the problem with that is that obviously when he got things right, he could have just said he was the pastor answering Bible questions. But if he got something wrong and said, also, I'm in Jesus, well, now you got two things against you. You're misrepresenting God and his word. So that is uh, why I wouldn't recommend Jesus calling, but note as well, just like with the Jordan Peterson thing, eat the meat, spit out the bones. It's not like you're cursed with a curse for reading Sarah Young, but uh, at the same time, it wouldn't be a series I'd recommend for those reasons. You can do further research, but for the time that we have, that is the most that I can provide. Um, and again, no, no fault at yours, Peter, for not reading. <laughs> but uh, thank you for the question, Lynn. That would be my response and review. And if I am misguided or mistaken as for something, uh, the elder can correct me tomorrow. Here's a question from Justin. Wants to know if the United States is a Christian nation. Uh, it's contains Christians, but Christianity is not a nation-building religion. Uh, whether or not the Founding Fathers, the arguments therein, claim they were Christians or not, the important emphasis, are you a Christian in the United States? As far as the history is concerned, it's very much misrepresented, but uh, don't let that propaganda dissuade you from saying are our laws based on Judeo-Christian principles, like we talked about, the writings of the Constitution were heavily inspired by the presumptions made in scripture but note that wasn't what founded the concept of law the biblical principles and framework that we have are based on that though so in that in so far as that it's not an entirely christian nation as in composite there are non-christians in our nation and they are allowed but the laws and the foundations it was built upon are so that being said um questions we didn't get into but one i can do very briefly is there a multiverse nope no evidence for any apart from this god bless you we'll see you all again next time you've been listening to a reason for hope thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through god's word one question of the heart at a time until we meet again we would love to connect with you you can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.